0: Welcome to Gold Diggers, a podcast on strategy, goals, and growth. We'll cover all sorts of topics on OKRs, KPIs, strategy, and everything in between. Gold Diggers is brought to you by Purdue, a powerful goal management platform that helps organizations bridge the strategy execution gap. Use Purdue to increase transparency, alignment, and accountability, and simply head over to purdue.com to sign up for your very own free account. That is P-E-R-D-O-O dot com.
1: Hey everyone, I'm Hendrik, founder and CEO of Purdue, a strategy execution tool that incorporates both OKRs and KPIs. Welcome to a new episode of Gold Diggers. I'll be today's host and with me today is Steven Bungay, a strategy expert, former consultant of the Boston Consulting Group and author of The Art of Action. We'll be talking about, no surprises here, strategy and strategy execution. Steven, could you tell us a bit about yourself? <laughs> Yes, indeed. So
0: I did indeed start my career with the Boston Consulting Group, which was at the time a strategy consulting firm. It did nothing else, in fact, and I stayed there for about 20 years, by which time I got interested in the issue of execution that seemed to me to be a bigger problem for most of my clients than actually formulating strategy in the first place. And I joined the Ashridge Strategic Management Center, which was a bunch of ex-BCG and McKinsey partners interested in this various areas of strategy and management and organization and uh, in 2010 I published The Art of Action which was a result of the research that we did then. Now something that you should know uh, about me which makes me a little bit unusual is that I have a parallel career as a military historian. I got interested in um, I suppose the history of warfare combat when I was a child but very quickly it became an interest in the history of strategy. I was more interested in what the generals did than what the poor guys in the trenches did. And I've written two books on military history on a couple of campaigns. And it was when writing the second one, which is about the campaign in North Africa during the Second World War, that I came across a technique, an approach towards strategy execution, which had its origins in the military, which I thought could be adapted to business and that's really what the book is about. And in the 10 years since it's been published, I have been, in fact, spending most of my time helping clients to adopt the principles and practices involved in this, which today is known as mission command, and which I call leading through intent. So I'm a bit of an oddball, a bit of a hybrid, (laughs) and you'll find my approach um, is... I suppose historic and right? comes from somewhere else outside the business world.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I read your book with great interest, of course. Um I, I think that I think a lot of people are struggling with um uh, with the concept of strategy or defining mm. the concept of strategy in the first place. How how would you define strategy and what's the purpose of this strategy? Yeah.
0: So in the, before the 1970s, nobody in business talked about strategy at all. They thought, thought business was about being efficient. Uh, but it was then when competition began to become more intense that people suddenly got interested in strategy. And uh, now it's all over the place. People need a strategy for everything. <laughs> the word is degraded <laughs> in its value. So I have a pretty clear view about this. I, I think that there are four conditions that have to be fulfilled for you to need a strategy in the first place. The first condition is that you need to be trying to realize a determinate goal, not just a general one, survival or prosperity, but something specific. You need to have limited resources. You need to be facing some kind of opposition. And you need to be in an environment of uncertainty. In other words, you don't know everything you would like to know. And there are four realms or domains of human activity where those conditions generally apply. The first and earliest is, in fact, warfare, which is why the word strategy comes from the Greek word strategos, which was their name for general. It's the art of the general. The second area is in politics and international relations. And the third area is business Um, in a a market environment, I have to say. The Soviet Union... If business in the Soviet Union didn't need a strategy because you just had plans, right? You don't have any, any competition. But in a competitive environment, you do. Um, and so people often make the mistake of saying that I'm using the military as a metaphor. I'm not. Um, things that happen in the military world and the business world are either completely different, nothing to do with each other whatsoever, or they're identical. And what is identical is that they are two of the three or so realms that require strategy. So we can learn a lot about strategic thinking and about how to translate strategy into action from military practice if we know where to look, because it contains examples of the best and, far and away, the worst as well. So we better be careful.
1: Okay. And, And if we apply that concept or the definition of strategy to businesses, doesn't that automatically mean then that every organization needs a strategy? Isn't every yeah. organization in an environment of uncertainty faces opposition, competition? Yes, that's right. I would, I would say so. Are, are there organizations that could do without a strategy? Well, there are
0: organizations where you where you wonder, does it? Uh, so I, I work for charities, for example. Yeah. And um, of course, they're, they're not allowed to make a profit. But actually, when you get down to it, all these conditions apply. They do need more than a sense of purpose because they've got limited resources. Mm -hmm. And actually, they are kind of competing against others uh, to raise funds. Um, So even there, you find that something like strategy is needed. But if, if I'm working for the UK Foreign Office, for example, who are its competitors, Are they competing with the Home Office and and the Department of Health for funds from the Treasury? Uh, What what are they competing with? Britain may be in a competitive environment in certain ways with other countries, but the Foreign Office itself doesn't. It needs a policy there. It's still got limited resources, so it matters where they place them. It's still operating in an environment of uncertainty, but it doesn't really have any uh, opposition. And it's got to work out what goals it should be seeking to um, achieve with the resources that it has. So it is, as it were, three out of four. Um doesn't mean to say that people who are well-versed in strategy couldn't help them a bit, but they shouldn't kid themselves that they need one, I would say. Although, fact, <laughs> I believe they do.
1: But the, okay, so you, you mentioned that if uh, if they don't have competition such as the UK Foreign Office, they don't need a strategy, but they do need a policy. What's the difference between strategy and and policy?
0: Uh, Well, you're not trying to win something. You're You're not playing a game in which there are winners and losers. But you still have to make best use of your resources to achieve your goals, and you're going to have to handle constant uncertainty. So you've got to decide where you get the biggest bang for the buck. But there's not necessarily somebody trying to stop you. You don't have to outwit anybody. Yeah.
1: Okay. Okay. In your Agile Strategy Manifesto, you also uh, referenced that uh, if there is no uh, uncertainty, then all you need is a plan. I think lots of people, mm. when you do research online or when you, when you Google strategy, uh, I find tons of definitions uh, or tons of articles that define strategy actually as a plan. Could you tell us what, what, how you see the difference between the two? Yeah.
0: So if I can predict what is going to happen as a result of the actions I take. If I can be certain that nothing unpredictable is gonna occur from the outside world, or if the effects of those actions are not partly dependent on how other people react to them, then all I need to do is to make a plan. So when I go on holiday, for example, I'm dealing with complexity, Um, I have limited resources, I have to make a plan, you know, you have to book your flight, decide where you're going to go, book your flights, book your hotels, the taxes, and this happens, and that happens in sequence. But there is not, although things can go wrong, although there's an element of uncertainty, nobody's trying to stop me. They feel like it sometimes. But actually, everybody involved is trying to make that happen. So I need to do some planning. But I don't need a holiday strategy. Yeah. Okay. I don't. Okay. i come across many people talking about, well, what's your strategy for going on holiday <laughs> this year? Yes. That's a bit odd, isn't it? Yeah.
1: yeah. Although, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, this, the word strategy is being used for pretty much everything.
0: Exactly. Yeah. It's become overused.
1: At, um, at, the, at the start, you, you mentioned that one of the reasons for writing your book, The Art of Action, was that you saw that strategy execution was actually a bigger problem than strategy development yeah how would you define like what is strategy execution and uh, and what does good strategy execution look like
0: actually that 's an interesting question people don 't usually um, ask that because they kind of assume that they know what execution is it 's about turning the ideas or the, the thinking that goes into a strategy into action um, so i'd say it's it 's kind of where the rubber hits the road a Strategy, in my view, if if I had to give you a one-line definition of it, I wouldn't say it's a plan. I'd say it's a framework for decision-making. A strategy tells people within the organization how to make decisions. Ideally, it should enable them to make independent decisions without asking any more questions. Not many of them actually achieve that. Come back to why in in a few minutes, I suspect. They then work out what they should do as a result of this. And so the other way of when you're when you your strategy is invisible, right? It's, it's maybe written down somewhere, else, but actually it's in people's heads, but it has to be turned into action. And when an organization has got a good strategy and is actually executing it, it enables it to undertake thoughtful, purposive action. Organizations are terribly good at generating activity. Uh, But a lot of it is sort of Brownian motion, right? It's unless you get them anywhere. Action is activity plus movement, trajectory. It changes their position and the competitive landscape. So it has to be purposive because it's got this determinate goal that it's trying to achieve. And it has to be thoughtful because the situation is dynamic it's constantly changing And so what they decided to do six months ago in this particular department may not be applicable anymore it's better to do something else now and they must be ready to a change you're both fixed on achieving this goal this aim and at the same time very flexible about how you do it and that's one of the paradoxes of, of strategy it's uh, it's full of things like that that is why you need high alignment but you also need to give people high autonomy at the same time if you want to realize it. So you could say that um, execution is about translating strategy into action. And one of the first things people realize when they start doing this is that the strategic thinking doesn't just have to take place at the top. A strategy isn't a thing, that the board signs off and gives to the executive committee and then everyone says oh yes right okay so we can click the button and now we execute no no it's not like that at all everybody has to do a measure of strategic thinking about what is the right thing to do now in order to achieve this overall goal at their level and so it goes down and down and down of course the the difficulty of doing so rises as you go up. It gets easier as you get down. It's kind of obvious what to do when you reach a certain level. Yeah. But even so, um, it needs to extend really a long way down in the organization. So everybody has to learn how to think strategically. And The, the way the, the military came across sort of solved this problem, because you can't get everybody reading Michael Porter and doing their forces mm-hmm. analysis all the time is to say you've got to think two levels up and task one level down. Um, And that's the basis of the technique.
1: Is that then also what makes it so complicated? Because I think it was Kaplan and Norton who originally did research and found that, I think they claimed that 90% of organizations failed to deliver their strategy. Mm. Is is that true? Well,
0: I don't know what the... You have to do surveys, wouldn't you? But um, one of the things... I discovered early on is that this problem is very enduring. So there was a book published in 2005 by an American professor called Rabiniak, who said that he's been teaching strategy execution for 20 years and the conversations he has with the with managers that's, today that's are exactly true. the same yes. as they've been 20 years before. And that was in 2005. And I would have to say that the conversations I have with people now haven't changed in the last fifteen years. So it, it, when I do uh, workshops on strategy, strategy execution, I, I always ask people the question: and getting groups, what are the biggest problems in executing strategy? And you get the same old stuff: <laughs> the strategy is not clear. We don't really understand what it means. It's it's not clear what you need to do as a result. Uh, well, there are different different. Not everybody's bought into it. Uh, communication is a problem. You know, oh, we're not aligned. Oh, this this is, and then things happen and how did. So Uh, so it hasn't really changed, and it's very odd because in most areas, I mean, business is full of tremendously energetic, enterprising, creative people. And in most areas of business, if there's a problem, you solve it, multiple solution problems. This one just goes on and on and on, and and, and I'd say it's a pretty serious one as well. And I think there's a couple of reasons. I'm not sure, actually. I I, I think a couple of reasons why this might be. One is the legacy of business thinking, which goes back to the principles of scientific management and Frederick Winslow Taylor, published in 1911, but created a revolution in productivity because Henry Ford took it over and created the production line uh but the thing about Ford's production line is that it was great if you were making model T's and they were all black, yeah but it introduced a variant, and you got a problem and Taylor's principles are that managers should think and workers should do, so you separate doing and thinking in an organization, and that there is one best way, and the managers work it out on a bit acolytes is the famous guy who came up with the stopwatch and all the rest of it, and you optimize the processes. And you turn the workers into robots or something as close to robots as it's possible to make a human being. And there's an element of truth in that, because there are sets of processes and activities in a business which are like that, which can be optimised like that. In the intervening decades, of course, what has happened is that most of those processes, an awful lot of them in manufacturing, are now in fact carried out by robots. We've got rid of all the human beings. And the robots are left to do the robotic stuff, yeah. which is fine. It makes you efficient. And actually, even the robots have become flexible now because you can build individual cars on the assembly line, all of which are different because the software has got cleverer. But there are a whole lot of other activities in the business which cannot be done by robots and which, to which there is no unique answer. There is more than one right way. And critically, they all involve thinking and doing at the same time. They're interlocked. Right? So if you, if you try to have a mechanistic view of the organization, as Taylor did, in, in a machine, if you optimize the parts, you'll optimize the whole, right? Bit goes wrong, you replace it. But organizations are not machines. They're organisms. And if you optimize the parts of an organism, you will sub-optimize the whole. Yeah. And therefore you have to think about the world in a completely different way from the way in which business has been trained to think about it hence this business of thinking from the outside in what do i do in my department does my department or my project in my department in my business unit need to do to optimize the whole i have to think from the outside the ends two levels up and not try to optimize my bit of it optimizing my bit of it ends up in siloed thinking i cannot think of an organization today that doesn't complain about silo thinking. Oh, we're all in silos. It's not joined up. No, no, well, it's just one of Taylor's legacies. And although Taylor's been, I suppose, renounced officially, it's no longer preached, I think his ghost stalks many corporate corridors because that is the legacy that we've been left with, and we're not, and it's insidious, you know, it, it, I mean, a lot of the balance thinking behind the balance scorecard is very Tayloristic. In my view, they do think that it's possible to get some cascade of metrics, which is going to give you the answer somehow. And I don't think that's the case at all. I have a different view of metrics for them. Um, but even if you realize the limitations of Taylorism, the question is, so what's the alternative? And Mission Command Butler, is, is an alternative. It involves telling people what to achieve and why and leaving them free to decide on how. In order to do that, you could have competent people, of course, but most people in business today are pretty competent in my experience, Uh, but you've got to trust them. And in order to get everybody aligned, to replace control mechanisms for alignment with what I call developing a common shared understanding. Developing that common shared understanding takes work, takes effort execution is a discipline and people are not familiar with this and there's no business school i know of that trains people how to do this you have to learn that i don't think in most circumstances there is an alternative to this an effective alternative to this. You get people coming up with odds and ends here and there, but I, I think you've got to have a high alignment and high autonomy. Lots of organizations see it as a trade-off. They've got, if they've got a high alignment, yep. they're authoritarian. If they've got a lot of autonomy, they've got chaos and waste. And they realize that you can the more alignment you have, the more autonomy you can afford to grant people. But there's work involved in getting that alignment in the first case. And um, people don't. Realize that that's, that's the case. I mean, I think it ought to be basics in every NBA. Yeah.
1: There's, there's a, it ain't. I think there's a famous illustration from Henrik Nieberg, uh, who puts oh, yes. autonomy and alignment on the uh, on the axis. and then Yeah, that's on Spotify. Yeah, exactly. I also came across a quote from Reed Hastings. It's, it's a long time back, but I think it oh, yes. was... Referencing that um, we've been learning how to run industrial firms during the past 100, 150 yeah. years, and we only just start to learn how to run creative and innovative firms.
0: Yes, yes, it, it's, it's becoming more, yeah, because the, the industrial, what I think what he means industrial is, is the Henry Ford bit Yeah, exactly. that Taylor takes care of. Right. Yeah, and that all the decisions are taken by the leadership team. And you only need a few people to take decisions, yeah. right, about how the yeah, thing exactly. should be laid out. Should we invest in this plant? Should we expect, et etc. et cetera? Yeah, that, that was, there was thing of that going on in the, still in the 1960s. In the meantime, the vast majority of businesses are, are not like that at all. Yeah. It is about value added in one way. It's about knowledge. It's about skills. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, another little thing I do, I, I often ask people um, what the critical capabilities are resources that a company needs to assess in order to develop a strategy in, in the first place and and um, even 20 years ago i think you pretty much the first thing people would mention would be money finances yeah. capital now guess what the critical resources that people always mention skills people and they often forget about money altogether. <laughs> i have to remind them uh, you still need money <laughs> but the thing is of course if you've got um, you know, a bunch of creative people and they see an opportunity and they come up with a good business plan. There's gazillions of people who will fund their operations, venture capitalists, yeah, yeah. private equity. You know, you, if you've got a good plan, you can get money. That wasn't the case 40 or 50 years ago.
1: So that's why people are not bringing it up anymore since it is abundant. And so they do not bring it up anymore. Yeah. No, if you haven't got any, we'll, we'll just, you know, find someone
0: who gives us But doesn't that also while, while, anyway.
1: increase the need for a good strategy? Because there is abundant capital. It's Absolutely. It's easier to, to start a company. So competition. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Especially in startups where, where resources are so tightly constrained.
1: Yeah. yeah, for sure. I'm sure you know. I know, I know, Yeah. Um, coming, going back to your book, The Art of Action, some of the things we've already spoken about, but I mean, to help with strategy execution, I think um, you found three gaps and also provided clues for how yeah. to fill these gaps. Uh, so if I yeah. remember correctly, you talk about the knowledge gap, you talk about the alignment gap and the effects Gap. Could you explain to our audience like what, what each gap means and what solution you have for them?
0: Yeah, so the uh, the origin of the three gaps lies in the universality of a phenomenon called friction, which is the word that the great military theorist Carl von Clausewitz came up with to explain why execution is so difficult. Um, but I've sort of brought it down to three gaps and the first one is what I call the knowledge gap, which means that um, we never know as much as we would like to know. because We've got fundamental uncertainty, which means you can't make a perfect plan. And then the second gap is the alignment gap, which is the difference between what we'd like people to do, or they're supposed to do according to the plan, and what they actually do. And that can exist for a whole range of reasons. Maybe they haven't understood, right? they haven't heard. They haven't understood, have understood the words but reach different conclusions from it. Maybe they realize what it means but don't like the conclusions and so they decide they're <laughs> going to do something else on the quiet. You know, there's all that, there's motivation that can happen as well. So getting aligned is a big issue. But then, even if we did have perfect plans, which we don't, and even if everybody did do everything that we say on the plans, which they probably won't, there's no guarantee that we'll get the outcomes that we want because of the third gap, which I call the effects gap. Yeah. Now, when we take action in strategy as opposed to operations, we're taking action in the external world. And the external world is full of other people with independent wills, and there's no saying what they're going to do uh some of them are actually our competitors who are trying to actively make our lives difficult they're you know, we come in with a price cut oh we're going to increase volume by 10 percent. oh shit there's some undercuts as well uh we come in with the price cut. oh well the customers are going to love our new product now yeah sales are going to rise <laughs> oh actually the customers don't think our products as fantastic as we do oh god we got that one wrong as well and then something happens there's a uh, natural disaster somewhere in the world and suddenly our supplier key supplier shuts down. Oh, nobody saw that one coming, right? So the external events, which are completely unpredictable. I used to have to preach about this for reasons you can probably guess when I talk about unpredictable events, having a big impact, nobody needs to have an explanation anymore (laughs) as to why that might be the case compared to a year ago. So, you know, COVID has taught us that one. Now, the reason it's useful to divide these things up into three gaps is that the approach to overcoming them or closing them is different in each case and so in the first one you've got to learn how to make good decisions on the basis of less information don't try to plug the knowledge gap in new data because you'll never end never end at all you've got to learn and this is part of the skill of strategic thinking to synthesize a load of complex dynamic data and to grasp the essential point and to put that across. The guy who developed this technique, a genius of a man called Helmut von Moltke the Elder, who was born in 1800, he was a disciple of Clausewitz, says you must tell people all and only what they need to know in order to make good decisions for themselves. And that's above all what to achieve and why. The answer to the alignment gap is quite different. So once you've worked out, you work out, yeah, this is what we need to achieve and why, you need to go down to your people and explain to them the context and your thinking to get them inside your heads, and then you shut up. You shut up, and you get them to go away and tell you how they're going to go about that, and they come back and you have another conversation. So I, what well, the way I express it is, you give them a briefing. Yeah. They go away and then they brief you back so a briefing is followed by a back briefing so that turns communication from the way it usually is in organizations which is something comes down from on high in vast volume uh, and on the internet and their documents and their powerpoints this so class knows what it's all one way turns it into a loop so that everybody has conversations with the boss and with each other across until they develop this common shared understanding and they have a debate about how this you know, can be done. They check that it's realistic. If, it, if the how doesn't match the, the what it is they're trying to achieve, maybe they have to change the goal. Again, it's different strategy in operations. You may want to adjust the goal. And then you go out of that conversation armed with your understanding of the higher intent and with the mandate to look to left and right and adapt your actions. To achieve the intent, regardless of whatever happens, because we now we all break Cloud the bits. We all know that the unexpected is to be expected. Right? We don't try to predict the future anymore. We prepare our minds to be able to react rationally to whatever happens. And so everybody has to have a, an area of freedom of decision and action, which is why the high alignment follows from the high autonomy. Uh, sorry, the high autonomy follows from the high alignment. You have to get the alignment first. Then you can grant people freedom of action within boundaries to adjust their actions in line with intent. So there, there are these sort of three different ways of tackling the overall problem of the three gaps, but they all go together, yeah. and you've got to master all of them. And the closing the the knowledge gap, this, this business of making your strategy clear is... It's, it's a really demanding intellectual challenge. It, it comes down to that old English um, metaphor of seeing the wood for the trees. They can't see the wood for the trees, and they see all the detail, trees but can't see how the wood fits together. But a good woodsman yeah. understands, knows all the trees in the wood, knows all the pathways that connect them and the relationships between them, and can see the wood as a whole. And a really good one may be walking through the wood one day and see a little hole in the bark of one of those trees that tells him that an insect has got in there that could be carrying a deadly disease that'll wipe out the entire wood. They'll be on it, Damn. And there are there are managers like that. They pick up what they <laughs> sometimes call weak signals. Yeah, uh, everything's going fine, right? Well, the trees are healthy, and we're making money and everything. Else, but uh, though something's happened here. Someone's come up with a new piece of kit that could wipe out our business. Or I'm getting some customer dissatisfaction coming through here that's telling me the long-term trend is gonna move away from the channels that we're currently occupying. So I've gotta get, you know, there's stuff like that. That's the detail which could be deadly. And that's a skill. And and, I don't think anybody who has that skill has not been knocking around the place for a while, right? So some of it is just experience. But only a relatively small number of people who pick up experience also have that skill. So there's a bit more to it than simply seeing lots of cases and pattern recognition. But you come across them every now and again. And they're usually the most successful senior executives. Yeah.
1: This, is this also where your advice is then based on? Because I think at the end you mentioned avoid yeah. adding more detail. Instead, provide more clarity yeah. and let go of control.
0: That's right. Give better direction. So, yeah, so usually the default response when someone says, well, the strategy's not clear. So the people below seem to think that the people, the senior people have got some secrets that they're not telling them, and they wait for these secrets to spill out, and they never do because there aren't any. They've done their thinking, one hopes, at their level. And so people from below demand more detail. And sometimes people from above say, okay, so we're gonna to have to spell out in painful detail exactly what we want you to do, and that's wrong. Yeah, yeah. Because when you're trying to enable people to take rational action, you're trying to enable them to make choices. And that's different from in theory. So in theory, if I've explained some scientific theory to you and say, so, uh society, uh, can't quite get it. Then you might well want to go into a bit more detail. Ah, well, you didn't understand why this happens and then that happens. Well, let me tell you about these forces that are interplay here in mechanics, and then you will understand. Ah, okay, so more detail helps in theory. But when we're managers, we're not doing theory. We're doing practice, and we're trying to empower people to act so if I'm driving along the road and I face a T junction I've got to know whether to turn left or turn right. And I may have five reasons to turn left, six reasons to turn right. How do I know which is the right way to go? Well, only if you have already enabled me to make choices. So I'm sitting in front of a very large customer. It's the end of the year. And I've been told that we want profitable growth. And this guy's offering me a very big contract with very low margins because it's a big contract. And I'll exceed my sales target, but I'll not hit my margin target. So what do you want me to do? Well, the answer is most people don't know because they see senior people like say, we want profitable growth. Well, I never. Who doesn't? But they don't say, if in doubt, growth comes first. Or if in doubt, margin comes first. And either might be true if we're in a growing business and we just entered a new market we want to grab market share it's the sales volume that matters we're prepared to you know write up we'll buy the business at low margins we'll make money out of it with extras later on could be one scenario so yes take the contract. But I might be in another kind of business, a mature business or something, where we've been struggling to make money here for a long time. We've therefore got a focus strategy, and we're saying, no, I'm prepared to let go of a whole load of rubbish that we've got on the books at the moment. We only want a certain kind of contract. I'm even prepared to let our revenue decline. Then I should say no to this big contract with low margin. Now, how am I to know that the, well, the right answer is only if somebody's already told me how to decide in other words he's turned the strategy of a plan into a framework for decision making that actually works and the key is not detail the key is making choices and people are very reluctant to make choices what they like to do is to have a shopping list, a strategy shopping list. Somebody to do this yeah, and that yeah. and that and more growth and more margin and better customers yeah. and better service and happy employees. And uh, that goes on. Well, we can all do that in five minutes on the breakfast table. That's not strategic thinking, that's copping out. Yeah. The hard bit is saying, okay, so how does. How do I enable a salesman four or five levels below me in the organization to do the right thing in a situation that they may well be placed in by making choices? I've done it. I've sat I've sat <laughs> people say, Oh, well, we want we want we want sales and technology. Uh, sales and technology are our two priorities for next year. So, so which one? What do you mean which one? It's both. Yeah, I know they're both important. But if I had to make a choice about resource allocation, which way would I go? And I sit there and hours grinding away, and in the end, they'll give you the answer. But they won't speak to you for two months because you piss pissed them off so much.
1: Because you, you force them to make the hard choices that they are avoiding, yeah. right? And that brings us back to needing a strategy when you do have limited resources. That's right. Uh, another thing we've done, I've, I've done this, I know this
0: with a client at the moment, actually. They're formulating their statement of intent. And the way we've done it is to say, okay, this is what we're trying to achieve and why. And then we've got a series of what's called guiding principles. So we've created a framework for decision-making. And the way we did it is to make a statement about what we thought the future would be like compared with the present. And then we've said, we've written the word, therefore, we will, and we make a positive statement about what we're going to do. But... It's it's then followed by and not, and we make a statement about what we're not going to do. In other words, to make sure that we've made a choice and that people know what the choice means. It's not just blah-de-blah, right? Um, You know, that (coughs) customers are going to get more important uh, and not product oh oh! so actually we're a product oriented company and you're saying we have to be customer so i now start to think about what that means to me yeah we have to give them what they want not we what we happen to want to push so
1: you're actually adding context
0: By, i'm adding context and i'm saying this is the world we're leaving behind Mother, if you don't understand the positive statement, read the negative statement, and then the penny will drop about what these otherwise bland-looking words actually mean.
1: So you're highlighting the the
0: consequences of. You're highlighting the consequences You're highlighting the choice that you have made, and then people can act.
1: I think that's a that's a great piece of advice to end the uh, today's episode with. Stephen, thanks so much for for joining us today and sharing all your knowledge and experience with us. Is there anything else that you'd like to share? Any other advices related to strategy or strategy execution that you have for our audience? Uh, no. Well, um,
0: actually, I try and make these things uh, as as simple as possible. And I think I would sum up this approach in two songs. The first song comes from the Spice Girls, <laughs> one of me, and this is something you should do. Tell me what you want, what you really, really. like that and the second one is frank sinatra i did it my way no do not think that everybody has to do it your way brief them and let them brief you back and think about how you can support them to do it their way so bottom line closing strap line remember the spice girls forget frank sinatra
1: thank you stephen That was really helpful. I think there's lots of other things that I think we could be talking about. So uh, hopefully we can invite you again on one of our future episodes. Uh, But for now, thanks so much again for joining us today. Okay. Thank you, Henry. Cheers.
0: Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review. And don't forget to subscribe to Gold Diggers to stay up to date with all our upcoming episodes.